0: Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plan to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype so apologies in advance for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212, as I still take time to plan and record, you can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash suite 212. Today, I'm talking to Mark Thomas. I doubt Mark would need much introduction to many of our listeners, but for those who don't know him, Mark is a writer, performer and activist who was born in South London in 1963 and has been performing comedy for 30 years. He's perhaps best known for his TV series The Mark Thomas Product, which ran for six series on Channel 4 from 1996-2002, with two further specials broadcast in 2003. He has also made five series of The Manifesto for BBC Radio 4, written five books, been a columnist for The New Statesman, curated and authored two art exhibitions, and written a show for the Royal Opera House. He's given evidence to parliamentary select committees, walked the length of the Israeli wall in the West Bank, been credited with changing the law on tax avoidance, taken the police to court several times and won twice, tried to get the government in court over the Iraq war and cost one councillor and one government minister their jobs. He was also a Guinness World Record holder for staging 20 protests in 24 hours and recently became part of the podcast boom with a new series called The Things About Us. So Mark, welcome to Sweet 212. Hello, that was a lovely introduction. <laughs> Well, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. I've been following your work for years. A friend of mine at school introduced me to the Mark Thomas comedy product in 1996, I think, during the first series. And I watched every episode of the show, quite religiously, in fact, and it was a big part of my political awakening and political awakening through pop culture. So we're going to come back and talk about the Mark Thomas product in a bit. Just one thing I wanted to ask, having put your bio together this morning, your website says you've won five awards for performing three for human rights work, and one you invented for yourself. What was that?
1: The invented one was, I was doing a book and a show about Coca-Cola. And one of the things that they would always, if you charge them with environmental damage, like we ended up in India, where there were several Coca-Cola bottling plants that were shut down because there's huge bio waste that's produced as sort of side effect byproduct. And there've been several cases of water depletion within the local community because it takes a lot of water to create one bottle of Coke. And also there were cases of the bio waste getting onto the land and completely destroying the crops. So it was really interesting talking to villagers and people and organisers. But every time you tried to challenge the company, they turned around and said, "Ah, oh, but we are the winner of the Golden Peacock Award for environmentalism, for environmental responsibility. And when you look up the award, it's actually an award that Coca-Cola sponsor. And you just thought, well, that's, that's not right. So what I did, they kept on saying that I was biased. So I invented a award, which was the Emerald Eagle Award uh, for unbiased journalism and awarded it to myself. And whenever they would say that, I would actually say, but I am the recipient of the Unbiased Journalism Award. What was really, really brilliant though, no, because it was just a gag and it was just on the website and all that kind of stuff. Sometimes you just spot if people didn't do their research properly and someone would go, you're actually the holder of the Emerald Eagle Award for unbiased journalism. Tell us how you won that. And sometimes I would just go, no, I'll I'll tell them the truth. But sometimes I would just go, well, I think it's just a case of really, really trying hard to adhere to guidelines and good journalistic practices. And they would go along, believing that I had won this this award. There is actually an award. My mate made one for me. We found this eagle in a junk shop and he put it on a plinth.
0: So there is actually an award there. I was hoping you were going to like hold it up, but um, this is a podcast anyway, so it would be of uh, little use to our listeners, I guess, to, <laughs> to see it. But um, how have you been spending? Uh, how have you been spending lockdown?
1: I am living with my mum, who's eighty-four years old. I am in lockdown with her. I'm looking after her, so I am part-time carer, and she is also the rudest woman in South London. She's fantastically sweary. I absolutely promise you. She, she, she always goes. I once challenged her about this and said, you always swear. She goes, I don't. It's only you that makes me fucking swear. (laughs) It's a great quote. I often tweet out some of the things that she's said because she's just so rude. She's developed a minor cult following on Twitter. And there are people now who send her messages to make sure she's all right and all of that, which is very nice. So I'm in lockdown with my mum. I'm looking after her. We're doing all sorts of things. There's a new show that I'm working on, which is about the NHS and about key workers and the response to COVID-19 and I actually interview uh, people most days. Tonight I'll be interviewing someone from public health and hopefully someone from a renal unit. So each, every day I'll be, I interview people and we're trying to create a bank of testimony uh, that we can go into work with. That's what I'm doing and of course trying to keep my head above water like everyone else you know. I haven't learned how to bake. I haven't learned how to macrame. I cannot do calligraphy. I have not developed trampolining skills. I have nothing. I have possibly learned how to negotiate mood swings with elderly people slightly more.
0: That could be a useful skill in the future, and yeah, maybe something for you to uh, discuss with NHS staff who might need to uh, might need to be picking up on those skills as well. I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting uh, what you say though, because. I've interviewed a variety of people on this podcast now and different people are responding to the COVID-19 outbreak in different ways largely depending on whether or not their creative practice is collaborative or solo and I think there's a really interesting audience participation aspect in an awful lot of your work uh, is working with communities or audiences to maybe draw out some feelings about the society in which we currently live. And I've been listening to, to your new podcast, Things About Us, which is talking to people about the contemporary state of the United Kingdom and to some extent, the ideas of Britishness. The most recent episode was recorded in Belfast and was talking to yep. Northern Irish people whose you know, voices are often not heard on this subject and certainly not heard enough, I don't think. So maybe you could tell us a bit about things about us, you know, what, what it's about and how you came to make it. And I'd be interested to hear about Lush sponsoring it as well because Lush have been involved in certain political causes that I know would be quite close to your interests as well. So maybe we could talk a bit about that.
1: I was approached to do some work to work with Lush who I think are a really interesting company. They're a capitalist company, they make no bones about it, but they pay the living wage and they paid it they were the, one of the first companies to pay it. They were the first company to get the fair tax mark for paying their tax in the UK rather than putting it out offshore. And obviously, you know about their animal testing and ethical sourcing and all of that. There are obviously problems that, that they have, but the, I quite like them as a company and the people involved in it have been supportive of campaigns and things that I've been involved in. They've got quite an interesting policy of supporting people, whether it is you know the police spies out of our lives which is about women who had relationships with undercover cops. whether it is about, you know, tagging hen harriers, do you know what I mean? And being involved in the scheme that got the royals in trouble for bagging a protected species. It was an interesting thing because they basically said you can do whatever you like. That's great. So our podcasts are really long. We put them on an independent thing. So like we've mentioned Lush at the beginning of one, where i do a very short interview with the CEO. It just seemed an interesting thing to do as we're in the middle of COVID-19, that actually the greatest thing that we have so far is soap. Because I don't know if you know this, but basically the COVID-19 virus is three component parts, including this ribonuclear acid. But the outside of it is a biolipid. And the biolipid is the bit that holds all the prongs that attaches itself to your cells. And... Without the biolipid, it's an inert virus. It doesn't exist. It ceases to be active. And biolipid is fat. And this is what soap is brilliant at, is destroying fat. There's an amazing thing, which is one end of a soap molecule attaches itself to water, and the other end attaches itself to fat. So I found that really fascinating. And actually, you go, once you know that, you just think, oh, okay, I get, I understand now why my hands are like sandpaper. I understand why I'm turning them into this kind of dehydrated husk, because this is actually the best thing we've got. So that was interesting. It's really weird, because I I have a very, very spiky relationship with sponsorship and companies. There's. The story which I've told before is about how Holston Pills phoned up in the 90s. And basically, this guy said, we'd like you to audition for Holston Pills. Uh, it wasn't Holston Pills, it was the advertisers. And I said, I don't do adverts. And they said, yeah, but, you know, it's uh, it's Halston Pills. And I said, well, I don't drink. And they said, yeah, but you wouldn't have to drink alcohol. And I said, well, no, no, I don't drink. I said, look, how much is it, how much is, is it worth? And he said, what, with repeats, filming, there's six adverts, residuals. It's about 78 grand. And I said, okay, this is the best no I've ever said. No, I don't do adverts. I start laughing, right? My dad, who's a builder, is working round my house, right? It's very funny, because sometimes people on the right go, oh, your dad owned a building company. He owned a a construction company. It's like, my dad was a self-employed builder. He left school with no qualifications whatsoever and went and did an apprenticeship in carpentry and joinery. My mum was a midwife. So my dad, who comes from that background, he, he poked his head around the door and go, what are you laughing at? I said, I've just turned down 78 grand to do an advert. And he just said, you cunt. And that was his response that, that you know, that I, that I had dared to throw the God of capitalism on with a fire. And so I've been approached several times and I just thought, like, oh, I'm not really interested. But if people want to do them, that's up to them. You know, I'm not going to take bread out of any man's bowl. But the point is, is I think they tend to be sort of shit. Do you know what I mean? I think they tend to degrade you. So I've, I've avoided them. And certainly we've had fallouts over people sponsoring. I remember having rounds with Channel 4 about why do we have to have bloody adverts? And they're like, well, we're a commercial channel. <laughs> and that's, you know, my stuff appears on Channel 4, you get the adverts. I wanted to do a podcast that was as far away from those kind of adverts as possible, really. And so we've cho- chosen a platform where you don't get the adverts. You do get me talking with the lush CEO for three or four minutes at the beginning of one of them, and I think they're they're an interesting company. They are far from perfect, but they certainly are way more fun and way more interesting than 99% of any other business of that size. I'm happy to tell you about the podcast though. The idea of English exceptionalism really started to emerge during Brexit, during the Brexit debates, that somehow England thought that it was better than everyone else by virtue of being born English, that somehow it inherently made us better people and we had a finer history and we were more robust and determined and go-getting and everyone else was a bit lazy. So that's fine if you go along with an uninquiring sense of identity. It always strikes me as sort of fairly nuts when you ask an audience how old you think we are as a country, and people come back and go, oh, 5,000, 2,000, you know, and then someone will go, ah, well, 17, whatever, and you go, no, nah, that's the act of the union, which is, I think it's 1707, and so we'd go, no, nah, it's not that, it's actually we, Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom is England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland came into being in 1922, so we're really young, we're not 100 years old yet, but there is a sense of Englishness that goes, because we are the driving nation within this, We conquered the Welsh. We organised the Act of Settlement with Scotland. We organised and created Northern Ireland by denying Ireland its sense of being united or its political reality of being united. And there's this incredible irony that we have got this situation where swashbuckling swagger and pseudo-history has got us to this position whereby we think we're better than everyone else and have basically voted on that basis on all sorts of decisions and here we are in the middle of it and if you look at that English exceptionalism our history is richer it's far more complicated and it is a lot less swaggering than people would have us believe so for me you know when you look at our relationship with the north of Ireland I feel sorry for some of the DUP. They're sitting there just, we've been betrayed. They've got a history of betrayal. You know, England betrays them at every bloody turn and still they cling on. It's like an abusive relationship. And, and actually, you just think, when are you going to actually turn around and go, oh, we need to sort this out? What's fascinating for me, I've been going over to Belfast for years and years and years. I adore it. I, the first gigs we did were in a pub called the Paramore on the Ormare Road, which is a nationalist pub. And it got quite lively that night. And, um, it was it was an amazing experience, as you know, going over in the nineteen eighties when it was full on, and it really there were parts that were really full on, and you just like, I remember once a, we did a recording for Radio Four or Radio One in Belfast and there's a group of us comics who'd, who'd gone out there and we were staying at the Europa Hotel and everyone was going oh it's the most bombed hotel in Europe blah 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 blah, blah. and we arrived there and there's glass all over the road and just go okay. So, there, was a, there was a very much uh, a sense of it being lively and interesting and full of debate and performing in Derry down on the bog side or performing in Cold Rain you know performing cross community well people call it cross community but actually it's community. I love it. I find it exciting. I find it thrilling. I find the political situation is wonderfully complex. People have this idea that it's just like nationalists or just Republicans and unionists, loyalists, and and that's it. And sometimes it can be like that. But when we were visiting, right, did you know that the Irish language, which was banned, was kept alive by Presbyterian church? So the Protestant church kept the Irish language going because they wanted to convert the the heathen Catholics, obviously. Right. But they kept it going. Now, if you go down to the Shankill road in Belfast, which runs parallel to the Falls road and you look at these two communities, something like 80% of the fatalities during the troubles came from three streets, three streets. That's incredible you know you go down somewhere like the Falls Road which is the unionist side uh, so the republican side and you go down the Shankill which is the unionist side and basically you've got working class communities in neglect that's what you have within the space of 1.5 kilometers there's 15 food banks on the unionist side 15 food banks and you just think what is, you know this is a class struggle and i think what's really exciting is when you see groups like people not profit emerging uh from the sort of like nationalist side of it and then you see amazing campaigners like the Shankill Road Women's Centre is one of the most exciting places ever um, I went down there and there's a basically there's a socialist woman because this is one of the things that happened was one of the things that we were told that was after the Good Friday Agreement and people were being released from the maze actually incidences of domestic violence increased Now, if you are on the Falls Road, you cannot contact the police and say, can you come and help me out? Because you're contacting an agent of the Crown, you know, which is the sworn enemy. And you'll often be contacting people who at some point will have kicked your door down. So what was happening was people from the Falls Road were going to the Women's Centre on the Shankill Road to get support. And there's always been this kind of like under the table connection of women that unites and binds people together in very profound ways. And so you end up now where the Irish language classes, people are coming from the Falls Road to the Shankill Road Women's Centre to be taught Irish by a unionist socialist woman. And so for me, the fact that it isn't this binary separation, but actually about class and about nuance and about cooperation and collaboration is thrilling. I find it absolutely thrilling.
0: Yeah, and I think it's especially important, you know, we began talking about the things about us by talking about some of the sort of cultural divides that were brought up by Brexit. And, you know, one of my biggest frustrations with the way politics has been kind of conducted through the media around that referendum and after has been the erasure of class struggle and class politics with this sort of bullshit culture war stuff. Right. And I think it's quite interesting to doing work that's cutting through that.
1: I mean, absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. I also obsessed with this idea of why we think we're better than everyone else, because within it are so many constructs to do with race, to do with identity, and also to do with how we work within a class system. And actually, when you look at it, you just think, this is remarkable. So one of the programmes we did was, as, as you pointed out, in Belfast, where we just went to people and say what would you like to say to English people? And so we ran a show where people could join in and and write down their suggestions and play around with ideas. And that that was really exciting. And there's some amazing political comics in Belfast. There's an amazing guy called Tim McGarry, who's just brilliant, who is a great stand-up. We haven't put the stuff with him. There's a beautiful exchange that I had with him where he just said, pardon my accent, my impersonation, he said, uh, there's a thing, you see, there's a point where uh, everyone was a tout, everyone was a spy, everyone was undercover, you know, uh, and it happened right about the mid-70s and you'd see suddenly, you know, Jerry Adams' driver was a tout and steak knife was reporting back to MI5 and you know, we knew that the, the British Army were involved with the Unionists because uh, the Loyalist gunmen started to shoot straight. And he said, he said that eventually, it got to the stage where everyone was a fucking tout. Everyone was just, you know, working for MI5. or for the, In the end, it had nothing to do with us. It was just British agents shooting up British agents, trying to get other British agents into trouble. And we were just standing there on the sidelines. And he's a really funny guy. He's a great guy. So he was there as well. He also is one of the patrons and, and I think he's one of the president of the Humanist Society, which is quite a thing to be in Belfast. But also for me, there's a really exciting thing working with people like... I've got a history of working with people like Aima McCann, or when we did the, the gigs over on the Bog Side, or working with Dawn Purvis, who used to run... She used to be the deputy leader and then became leader of the Progressive Unionist Party. The PUP, they're a really interesting, really, really fascinating group that basically, in the Mays prison, made that journey and said, this is about class. And I met and spoke with David Irvine, who's just a great, and this isn't David Irvin, this is David Irvine. And I met, I met him and he was just, I'll tell you the story. I went over to Belfast, I was doing a gig, and the guy picked me up from the airport we're driving along, he said, who's impressed you politically, Mark? And I said, I like that David Irvine for that. he's an interesting, he said, would you like to meet him? I said, yeah, that'll be a laugh. So anyway, we get to the gig. I'm on stage doing the sound and the lights, just going to sound check and all of that. Guy comes charging in, holding a mobile phone in there going, Mark, Mark, it's David Irvine on the phone for you. I pick up this mobile phone. I go, hello. And this voice on the other end just goes, you've just bounced into my life. What exactly is it you want? And And I turned into the most English thing ever and just went, I wonder if you'd like to meet for a cup of tea. So we met for a cup of tea in this hotel a couple of days later. And I always have this thing of sort of like putting my foot in my mouth. So I thought, don't muck it up, Mark. Walk into the hotel. David, he's in the bar. David Irvine stands out. I walk towards him. I said, Mark Thomas, I recognize you from the poster. I said, David Irvine, you're smaller than you look in the mural. Which is just like completely the wrong thing to say. But a remarkable chap who suddenly starts talking about the importance of education. The fact that actually in, in the loyalist community education wasn't valued. The fact that actually you know in the Mays prison he noticed that Republicans were getting degrees and doctorates and all of this and the loyalists were in the gym. So for him there was this massive educational divide and it came along with a culture war. So for him it was actually about class. He had this wonderful thing where he said, we're going to set up a human rights center in the unionist community. And he said, because the thing is, once people know they've got rights, they might realize other people have got them as well. And he was just a fantastic fellow. I really liked the fact, he would describe himself as a socialist and a unionist. And for me, being brought up on the left, traditionally, I would go with the nationalist ideology, not necessarily Republican, but it would be a nationalist ideology there. David Irvine just completely turned my head round to look at it from class and class perspective and to do it practically and you just think well it's amazing I've just had my mind completely changed by a bloke who at one point in his life was chained to the bumper of a car at
0: a checkpoint with a bomb in it. I might have rambled a little bit there. No this is it's, it's wonderful I mean it's, it's I was just thinking it's really interesting to to see how many tangents come out of everything you do right I mean we, we just started by saying tell me about the podcast and we've, we've come back to you know lots of different aspects of the political situation in Northern Ireland so there's lots of places we could go and we could talk about and you know as I said at the top of the program you've been doing comedy and activism for 30 years or so so there's many many things we could talk about but i think i want to if it's okay i'd like to move the conversation back to an extensive focus on the show you did for channel four regular listeners to this show will know that i am very interested in the works of and was personally acquainted with mark fisher the cultural theorist and writer and blogger who died a few years ago but wrote very interestingly about the need for people to work Within mainstream institutions, he really felt that people should try and work within the Labour Party and the BBC and places like The Guardian, Channel 4. He was very interested in the limits and possibilities of working within big cultural institutions with a large reach. And this was something I used to think about a lot, even as a teenager, watching your show on Channel 4. I mean, I think I was 14 in 1996 when the show started, was when I first saw it. And I watched it all the way through to 2002 when it stopped. And there are a couple of special episodes after that, but the regular series stopped around about the beginning of the war on terror, I think. So I'd like to talk to you about the show on Channel 4 and what you were able to do with that format, because it was quite an interesting format. You know, Noam Chomsky in Manufacturing Consent talks about how mainstream political narratives get set up by being repeated over and over again. Uh, you know, in newspapers, on television programmes, they get kind of imbibed into narratives given on news programmes without you even really noticing it. And it needs an awful lot of time and space to unpick a lot of those narratives, which is why I think a lot of comedians who are trying to challenge those narratives and do politically charged work don't get on very well with those kind of panel shows, you know, it's a lot of the week, have I got news for you, things like that, because they don't really, you know, those pre-designed formats don't give you so much space but what you had with the Mark Thomas product was 20 can I interrupt you just for half a sec sorry there
1: it's really interesting when I started as a comic one of the things that struck me was that people didn't write new material as often as they should and I mentioned right quite early on that we should set up a new material night where people would pay a few quid to get in and any money we got would go for a new sound system and a coach trip for all comics that we could get on The Coach to Margate, which is what we did, we had a works outing. And from there, I started to become obsessed with topical stuff and writing all the time. And I set up alongside Kevin Day, The Cutting Edge, which is still going at the comedy store. And when we set it up, we originally wanted this show that was interactive. We wanted a show where comics would go and write gags in the interval. We wanted a show where you could muck about and where you could have all this new stuff in there. And one of the things that we learned very quickly, that I learned very quickly, was actually when you say to people, what stories would you like us to cover? You basically cede ground to the newspapers. You basically say to them, what stories have you heard about most and are in your consciousness? It's really interesting. When you do topical gags, there's a point where it works really, really well and then it starts to work less well then it goes down. As it moves from someone's consciousness into something else and something else replaces it, and very quickly, in the space of a year or two, it was just kind of like, I don't want to do this because if I get up and they go, okay, what have we got a subject for Mark to go and write about in the interval? And someone go, Princess Diana. It's like, I have less interest than you could ever imagine. Right? Seriously, this is a bottomless pit of less interest. So I think you're right. There is a, those panel shows where you go, oh, we've got to have a gag about, and then whatever the story is, and it doesn't matter that the newspapers have set that story. You know, Keir Starmer has got a, got land that could be worth £10 million. He says he's a socialist. Suddenly, you know that Have I Got News For You will be talking about it, and you know that it will appear on, you know, whatever. It will appear on radio, you know, all those things. And you think, well, I'm not interested in spreading their agenda, really. That was one of the things that we were really firm on when we started to do the comedy product. It was like, we're not interested in doing other people's stories. The first series, we were just interested in getting away with as much as we could. I'm obsessed with people like Bertolt Brecht. My story of how I got here comes from a whole load of influences. You know, it starts with, uh, you know, I saw Caucasian Chalk Circle when I was 16, 15 which is a Bertolt Brecht play. And I was amazed. I was utterly amazed that my mind had been changed in a theatre. I walked in thinking one thing. By the end of the play, I thought something else. That has always gripped me that actually it's got a transformative power because it's got a power of empathy to show you something you didn't think you knew about or were interested in. And that's really fascinating. I loved punk. I loved bands like the clash and but i love bands like crass and if you bought a crass album and you unpacked it it was just this argument you were you were buying an argument on vinyl and i found that thrilling i found all those bits really exciting dave allen who was the most subversive comic going you know dave allen i learned about apartheid through watching the dave allen sketch that's how i learned about it Dave Allen, who who would appear, and he had his finger; he'd lost a bit of his finger, and he was flicking imaginary cigarette ash off his trousers on a stool in front of the camera. He did this gag in front of London Weekend Television, where they were recording it in London. And he walks on stage and goes, I tell Irish jokes and I get into a lot of trouble for it. But I'll tell Irish jokes if I want to. (coughs) I'll tell Irish jokes. Nobody tells me what I can and can't talk about. I'll tell Irish jokes. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Don't you agree? Yay. I'll tell Irish jokes. Yay. Two parties leave Dublin to work in London. The IQ of Dublin halves overnight. Big laugh. You've got to be able to laugh at yourself. Yay. They arrive in London and the IQ doubles. Silence. And he turns to the audience and just goes, no, I thought we'd agreed that you've got to be able to laugh at yourself. And it was just catching someone's bigotry square on the jaw. It was the most magnificent thing. So, for me, when you get people like, you know, Bertolt Brecht, who was writing the he wrote all sorts of stuff. He wrote with communist theater groups, he wrote for youth leagues, you know, he, he, he writes these amazing dramas that show personal choices within political situations. So it's a real Marxist sort of like piece of drama that you're looking at the forces of a society, you're looking at the forces of capital, but you're also looking at individual choices within it, which is brilliant. So, when you see that, and you see alongside the sort of like the the more i suppose people like I was fascinated with the fluxus art movement uh, and situationalism but fluxus art movement was it was so wonderful for me you know you had these people who were just like it was about. Art had to mean something. It had to change something. It had to involve people. It had to be radical. You know, I loved people like um, Boys. you know, his, his sort of artworks, which were just really fantastic and challenging. And some of them you thought, well, oh, this is a bit, a bit ropey. And then others, you, like, this man is light years ahead of the game. And you look at it and then you look at, you know, the KLF and you look at all those kind of things. Those were the things that influenced me. So that was artistic. But when you look at You know, for me, it was the miners' strike. I was at college in the north. I was at college in Yorkshire when the miners' strike kicked. I was a member of the Labour Party. And as a member of the Labour Party in the north during the miners' strike, we used to do collections and all that kind of stuff. That experience of seeing people that you live next door to being arrested and put on fitted-up charges of people that you meet in a club, you know, like a, a... The Labour Club literally was a red shed and it was a drinker. That's where everyone went. And you see people that you'd see week in, week out who were starving. For me, that was the experience. Once you see that, a door opens and it never, ever shuts. And so when you put all of those things together and we come to work on the comedy product, it was kind of like, what can we get away with? What can we do? One of the first things I remember we did was we, it was coming up to an election and the Tories were going to lose it and they desperately wanted to get publicity. And so we invited all these Tory MPs and said, would you like to come and appear on a youth programme? They said, oh yeah, yeah. We had so many Tory MPs. We didn't have enough. We couldn't fit. We didn't have time to get them all on. And I dressed up as a bear. So I was dressed as this big bear. We had Dom Jolly working on our team. You might have guessed by this point. I was dressed as a bear sitting on the sofa. And they'd bring these MPs in and I'd ask them questions like, Do you like do you like honey? And they go, Oh, yes, I love honey. I love honey, I love especially British honey. They go, Do you like Winnie the Pooh? Yes, I love Winnie the Pooh. I do, I do, I do. Now you said that you are pro hanging but anti abortion. What age do you think we should kill people? And he, yeah, you know, the teddy bear has just asked this politician this question. I remember this guy, David Amos, sitting there, and he just sat there, just with this silence, and they just went, 18? And it was just this wonderful moment. he just thought, I don't think anyone's seen politicians in this scenario before. We did all sorts of stuff in the first programme just to, to muck about, to create chaos. You know, we went into a McDonald's drive-in. So we did an interview with all the press and PR people who talk about the fun and the wonderfulness of a McDonald's drive-in. And then we just sent a series of vehicles through the drive-in. So we had a tank, we had a punk band on the back of a low loader. We had a clown car that fell apart. And the clowns were great because they're really good performers. They instinctively improvise and not draw a crowd. So the manager shouted, you've got to leave the property. And one of them would drop their trousers and goes, oh, my trousers have fallen over. And, you know, and, you, and, and then we had a herd of cows that we came in with this herd of cows. going fries, we just want the fries. And actually it was kind of like, it was like misbehaving, but with, with a purpose. And we did all sorts of stuff. But we started with this idea of just mischief, creative mischief and doing things we weren't supposed to. So, like, we took the money that we would need to make the last show after we had paid everyone, and put it on a horse. And we said, if we win, we'll get a Gainsborough painting, we'll do this, that, and the other, and if we lose, we'll film the show from a mate's living room, which is what we did. We lost spectacularly and filmed the last show on, and really it was just about having a sense of devilment and sticking your fingers up at the establishment and just going, do you know, this is just telly, it doesn't fucking matter. Let's put the money on a horse. If they never give us another series, we've had a laugh.
0: Was that how you pitched it to Channel 4 originally then, as, as something that was more playing cranks and creating these situations at the expense of deserving targets?
1: What happened was, it was a bit more complex because there was no pitching. I'd done some stuff for Channel 4. You know, I was doing some bits and bobs, you know, presenting Viva Cabaret. <laughs> and it's really I love the fact that I was I was one of the MCs for Viva Cabaret alongside Lee Evans and Lily Savage don't know what happened to them but anyway I was I was the third <laughs> I was the third compare and we had a great I mean I loved it but the relationship wasn't one of kind of like right you come in and pitch I worked with them on bits and bobs and then we did some other stuff and then they asked me to do a bit more and then they said, What well, do you want to do a pilot? And we discussed making a pilot and how it would work. And it came very organically, actually. I would hesitate to defend Channel 4 these days. I really would. I think the thing that has incredible credibility is their news. I think they're absolutely really light years ahead of any other news channel, running easily alongside Newsnight and possibly ahead of them on occasion. What was fascinating back then was that the guy who was a commissioning editor called Seamus Cassidy, and, you know, he commissioned Father Ted. He commissioned Brass Eye. You know, he did all this stuff. And actually, there's a story of him. (laughs) There's a story of him going into a meeting at Channel 4, and the head of Channel 4, Michael Grade, said, right here, Seamus, he's going to get rid of this bloody, awful Father Ted. And Seamus Cassidy turned around and said, actually, I'm not going to do that because the next series is going to prove how wrong you are in your judgment about it. And there was something brilliant about having a commissioning editor who did that. Let's move over the obvious questions about Glina and all of that. But the actual program itself was very adventurous and very bold. And I think there was a sense of mischief. I like to think that we snuck in in a window of opportunity between the IRA and Al-Qaeda. That's the window of opportunity we snuck through. And Channel 4 was in its infancy. Well, Actually, Channel 4 was in its kind of adolescence. It was discovering who it was and therefore taking lots of risks.
0: You make a really interesting point there about being in between the IRA and Al-Qaeda, something I really loved about the show at the time and like to talk to you about. You've described the first series in some detail, and I think from the second series on... I know you dropped the word comedy from the title at some point and the show took more of a turn towards uh, activism and like investigative journalism and combining that with stand-up and what I used to really love about the show and again this taps back to something you said earlier is that I never knew what the show was going to be about you're investigating a political issue that maybe people didn't know about and you would spend half an hour a week on one or two topics and inform a stand-up audience and, by extension, your television audience about this topic and perform some actions, you know, I mean, I could talk about lots of the shows in the series, but one that really struck me was the People's Nuclear Train Militia, where you talk to people in a town where there was, like, nuclear waste, I think, being just transported by train just through their town that people weren't being told about. And, you know, you kind of performed this action that raised awareness that this was happening in the hope of pressing for some sort of change in what was happening. You know, you did shows where you intervened at arms fairs, for example, and often put yourself in in harm's way, I think. I mean, part of the thrill of watching the show wasn't just learning about these issues. It was seeing you and your team, like, put yourself on the line for them.
1: I think there's something quite interesting about people having a go at things and sometimes falling flat on their face. (laughs) You know, sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. I mean, for me, it wasn't, these were all calculated risks. When people said, oh, you're very brave going undercover at an arms fair, it's like, no, I'm not. These people just sell the guns. They don't get involved in fights. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? So I think there's a sense of daring do we had. We had a sense of we want to be audacious. You know, we want people to think, bloody hell, they've done that. There has to be that sense. And quite often we had it. Sometimes we didn't. When we didn't have it, that's when we failed. There are all sorts of things that we did where we tried to reach out to involve the audience. We did the condition exempt works of art list, which was if you inherit a work of art or, you know, nice furniture or Picasso's or what have you, you would defer the tax. So you didn't pay your inheritance tax. You kept all your stuff. But the deal was you had to allow the public in. Basically, it was a tax scam for the rich. So they said, oh, we allow the public in, but there was no information of who had what. No, no information of what you could see, where you could see, how you could see, who you could contact. It was like you had a right, but after that, you had no right to find out about the things you could have a right to. So we did a whole load of stuff, inv- including going to see Nicholas Soames. We found out Nicholas Soames, who was the Tory grandee, I had a three-tier mahogany buffet table with partially reeded slender baluster upright supports. And I'm a big fan of partially-readed supports. So I'd hate fully-readed, and I despised non-readed. But partially-readed really does press my button. So I wrote and said, can I come and see your three-tier mahogany buffet, partially readed send about so right write and supports. And he arrange it with my secretary. So we arranged it with the secretary. A few days before going to see it, I said, can some mates of mine come with me? He said, no, they should arrange individual viewing. So he thought, okay. So he got hundreds of people to ask if they could go and see his three-tier mahogany buffet table. He put it on display at Christie's. And what was great was we said to people, just come dressed up. So people came along, dressed up as artists. Someone came along as Rembrandt, someone came along with a, as a cubist work. My mate Paul came along as Robert Mapplethorpe in a pair of chaps. And they had said to us, You're not allowed to film, you're not allowed to film or take photographs of the mahogany buffet, because they were terrified it would get onto the, you know. They thought if we can limit what they're allowed to show. Then we'll dampen it down. We took into that room courtroom artists, cartoonists, clay modelers, pipe cleaning modelers. We had an etcher sketcher, any way that we could recreate the three tier mahogany buffet without a photograph. We took them in. What happened was Soames took his works off the list. And what it was, several years later, I was talking to an MP. I was going to meet an MP about a meeting about landmines and about campaigning. And I saw Nicholas Somers having a cup of tea in the atrium and I just couldn't resist it. I just started walking towards him. And I walked up there and said, "Uh, Nicholas Somers, Mark Thomas, Channel 4. I said, do you remember the three-tier Mahogany Buffet table? I said, you withdraw it from viewing. Did you pay the tax? He said, yes. And that was it. It was just like, Great. And we got quite a few people to pay the tax. They changed the law on the back of it. And we got praised in the House of Commons and all of this kind of stuff. And actually, it felt, you know, for me, there was a wonderful thing. What happened afterwards was all these geeks and nerds who are wonderful, beautiful people went and found out about the list. And they started going to visit all these different places. And so all this information spread out. And it was kind of like this mad little club we had going. And I loved the fact that people either adhered with it and you let us see the art or you paid your tax because it didn't matter to us one way or the other. You know, if we can't see it, we can't see it. So you pay your tax or you let us in. So there was a sense of achievement with that. I mean, and I think the other thing about this was there's also a sense of busking. We did a show about Nestle and about incorrect labelling. Of baby milk powders that was dangerous in developing countries. And we did the show. Anyway, we were in the sort of production and we got a phone call. Someone said the CEO of Nestlé is going to be speaking in Oxford, in the one of the Oxford unions tonight. And we were like, bloody hell, we need to get in there. The producer was great, because he turned around and said, Right, get in a car drive up there take a camera so me and my mate jack jumped it who worked on the show jumped in his car we had a mic and we had a the smallest camera we could get and we got there we didn't know we drove up to Portsmouth. we didn't know where this was taking place and about five minutes outside oxford somebody phoned up and said this is the address so we got given the address So we now knew which college it was in. We arrive at the college, there's massive great doors. You know those sort of Oxford gates? So you have the pillars and then you have the big doors and there's a little door on the insert of it. And this little door insert opens as we're standing outside. And a bloke's about to walk out and he looks at us and just goes, Mark Thomas... I know why you're here, come with me. And he led us into the inner courtyard of this college. We walked through the courtyard, we go down some stairs, and there's an underpass, which leads up to another part of the building. And when we got there, this other person just went ah great i'm glad you're here you're coming in as my guest all these people from nestle and they went no 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 you got to come in and they said no no these are our guests you agreed we could have guests you said that we could have open debate and discussion and eventually they said all right you can come in but you have to take your coat off you have to take your bags you have to leave all your bags you have to leave your phone you have to leave all this stuff and then they put you through metal detector and i have a way of getting stuff through metal detectors and so we got this camera in, and suddenly we're sitting in a room with the chief executive of one of the biggest food companies in the world, who we've been chasing for bloody ages. And he says, Are there any questions? And at that point, my mate Jack suddenly whips out a camera. He starts filming. I start hit asking with the questions. All these bouncers come over, and I shout, Do we have your permission to film? Would it be all right to record your response? And there's a moment where he weighs up the opportunities and goes no that's fine and so this whole thing happened and we confronted him and they changed some of their labeling they didn't go far enough but they changed a bit we had confronted them about it we were getting faxes from switzerland from head office saying we're trying to do this we're trying to do that and i think there's something really interesting when you get to that stage there was something interesting that We'd done programmes on telly. People knew who I was. I was quite recognisable. And when we arrived, it was just like everyone joined in, wittingly or unwittingly. They opened doors. They led us down to places. And through it was just a series of coincidences that meant we end up pointing a camera at the chief executive of Nestle. And I loved that.
0: Yeah I mean I uh, I still boycott Nestle now as a result of watching that program so yeah I haven't bought a Nestle chocolate bar in 20 years or whatever it is and yeah I mean you know I learned an awful lot from the show and that was certainly something that really interested me was the kind of openness of that period in the late 90s where there wasn't really an overarching political narrative and there were lots of smaller things that you could shine a light on and of course that changes in September 2001 and obviously I don't think your work became solely oriented around the war on terror by any means, but it did, it did completely change the context in which you were working, I think.
1: a doubt, doubt it changed the context. I remember going to an arms fair. I, I managed to get into an arms fair and I was put on problem PR watch. And So he had some people who dealt with firefighting in PR. I remember walking in and he said, but don't you think the rules of the game have changed? And it was kind of like, mate, you're selling weapons to Saudi Arabia, who are funding Wahhabism. What are you talking about the rules of the game? Your your rules haven't fucking changed. If the rules of the games have changed, then shut your bloody arms fair down. It certainly became harder to do, but it became really interesting as well. It's always interesting, you know, what happens is interesting, life is interesting. But it presented new challenges of how I worked There were bits where Channel 4 stopped allowing us to do things. So there was one example where we were going to put crosses on a workers' memorial day. remembering those who died at work and industrial accidents and you had all sorts of people involved and we were going to put crosses onto Parliament Square. And it just so happened that it was the day that the Queen Mum was going past and that was kind of sacred. You know, you should never do that. So, we couldn't do that. We did one program where we wanted to show how the effects of sanctions on Iraq were absurd. So, everything had to be sold through the UN and then had to be bought through the UN. And I tried to get a teddy bear illegally into Iraq. And Channel 4 banned me from taking it. They said, You're breaking the law. I was going, You yeah, know, that's the whole point. We're breaking the law is to show how stupid the law is. And eventually, a Welsh MP took the teddy bear in. When you start encountering those things, it just kind of like grinds you down and actually what you have to do is say at what point do i focus on just keeping on telly regardless or at what point do i walk away and go i'd I'd, I'd rather keep doing my own stuff thank you and so it became very much about not turning into something that was just greedy to stay on telly, not being a creature that just craved television's attention for the sake of it, but went on there with a specific purpose and intent. And if we weren't allowed to do it, that was fine. I'd walk away from it, which is what ended up happening. When I look back on it all, bizarrely, I was talking to the producer of the show, who the pair of us are like a double-headed monster during the, the making of all the series we did. And he did say to me, he said, you know, I hadn't spoken to him for a while. And he said, you know, half my anecdotes are about that show. Half the things, the stories I tell about life are about that show. But he was, he's an interesting guy. Jeff, he grew up in a Lake District. He said he always remembers when he was about 12, he got hold of a copy of the Anarchist Cookbook and, and was looking at how to make bombs from fertilizer and sugar and you just think when a 12 year old is in Cumbria is trying to make a bomb out of fertilizer and sugar and he told me once he his parents had gone out and he tried to make a fertilizer and sugar bomb in the garden and it it just kind of smoldered nothing went off yeah, but just as smoke was just pouring out of the gun. He said, literally, the local vicar came around and said, Hi parents in? As he was trying to put this thing out with a spade, bashing a bomb in the lawn with a spade. While someone said, "Hi, oh, parents in? It's the vicar. I've just popped round. And actually, anyone who does that is probably the right person to produce
0: the show. Yeah, I had a copy of The Anarchist Cookbook as well. just passed around on a pair of uh, Commodore Amiga discs when I was about 14, around about the same time I was discovering your show. But, you know, Channel 4 and the British comedy and television landscapes, I think, are very, very different places now. And, you know, I personally, you know, I don't like being the person who says that Things aren't what they were, but things are very different.
1: There's lots of good things. You know, there are lots of good things. Man Like Mobine is brilliant. It's a really, really exciting sitcom. It's challenging. It actually puts voices that you wouldn't normally hear. These are working class, black voices making programs. And that's really thrilling. I love seeing that. For me, there's something wonderful about that work and how... It has its own subversion within it. And that's great. There's lots of stuff. It's just that it's easy to... Look, when alternative comedy as it was started, television very quickly saw here was a group of highly motivated people who were going to work cheaply with their own material that was rehearsed and ready because they wanted the exposure. And as theaters shut down, there was this area that was flooding with people who wanted to get on telly. And it was cheap. We were cheap. And this was statuism. This is what it was. And suddenly, telly finds that actually you can make really cheap programmers by putting these people, who are highly motivated, behind a desk. And, you know, that they would do panel shows and all that kind of stuff. For me, I always thought, well, we're getting into something rebellious, something exciting, something that feels like it's in the underground, which it did at first. Why would I want a nine-to-five desk job, which is what a panel show kind of is? There are very good people on, you know, people who do it very talented and very, very clever and very funny, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you see that being the cultural landscape. And there's amazing stuff. I mean, Charlie Brook is still there, you know, Clunk's she's great. You know, there's lots of interesting performers out there. And when you look at the stand-up scene, actually, for me, it's fragmented. The stand-up scene is fragmented. So you have people like... Josie Long and Johnny the Baptist and John Luke Roberts, you know, who are producing really interesting, inventive, fun stuff that is still subversive. You've got my favourite comics at the moment, who like Bridget Christie and Shazie Mirza, who's my favourite, actually Shazie is my favourite. So you've got these amazing women comic, women of colour who, who are working and I just thought, thank God that's happening. It's not all shit. You know, there's still exciting things being done. There's still radical things happening. A lot of the radical things happens outside of television or parallel to it on occasion. But when you look at YouTube, when you look at the fact that independent documentaries, you look at something like Hail Satan, which is a fantastic documentary, which is about civic activism. That's an amazing thing to be shown at cinemas and end up on Netflix. And you just think, actually, there's quite a lot of stuff out there. The trouble is, is shifting through it to find it, as is always. And now, for me, what I want to do is just make stuff that I'm proud of working on, that I feel is important. You mentioned that I've walked the length of the Israeli wall on the West Bank. A friend of mine who teaches the stand-up course at Middlesex University, which is Dr. Sam Beal, we went over to Janine in the north of the West Bank where there's a refugee camp, and they have a theatre in the refugee camp. And we spent years talking to them about coming to run comedy workshops. And in the end, that's what we did. We went to Janine. We ran comedy workshops in a refugee camp and put on a comedy night, uh, all entirely in Arabic. The shows were in Arabic in the end. And then we brought two of the performers here and together we created a show about what it was like trying to put on that comedy, that journey. And now we have got, what's brilliant is the guys are still running their own comedy nights that we're still going over and supportive kind of fashion but it's now about them taking that idea and running they're trying to set up a stand-up circuit on the west bank in palestine now for me that's
0: bloody thrilling that's thrilling i don't care if it's on telly or not yeah fair enough you know i was going to ask you if you could imagine a set of circumstances where you'd work on television again but i think you've probably answered my question really
1: the thing is i know it sounds slightly silly and it, it will sound slightly sentimental. But you can only do stuff that makes you happy, that challenges you, that makes you create things and explore things and try new things. And if you're not interested in trying new things, then don't be a creative person. Create things, create new things. And so for me, playing with form, trying to do shows about one of the shows we did was about undercover policing. One of the shows we did was about walking the wall. One of the shows we did was about you know the right to protest. All of these things are ways which people can join in and try and elicit change and try and find out what it is to hear voices which are denied access. And I think that's really, really exciting. I go back to the original thing of seeing Caucasian Chalk Circle and thinking this changed my mind. That has always stayed with me. The power to actually go on a journey that you did not expect to go on is something that dangles in front of me like bait every day of my life.
0: Well, I think that's a really lovely place to finish. So... Mark, thank you so, so much for joining me on Sweet 212 today. That's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me, jean Listeners, we'll be back very soon. We are lining up a number of guests for the sessions. We haven't confirmed any of them yet, so I can't tell you who they are, but they'll all be great, I assure you. Find us on Twitter at Sweet underscore 212. Find us on Facebook. Find us on SoundCloud at Sweet 212. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks a lot for listening, take care, goodbye.